Now, I have to start by saying that the title is quite misleading, and I really, over the past few days, looked at it a few times, and I really regret having sent it in, because it sounds like I'm running for leader of the NDP in Ontario, <laughs> and I'm about to give you a lament for the lost welfare state. Um, and that is not at all what I want to do. Um, in fact, um, if I'd been a little more with it when um, Marcus asked me for a title, um, I would have found some way to accessibly convey the fact that I think it's very problematic that critical organ studies today is redeploying the tired myth of how, oh, Canada once had this great, you know, all public procurement, all public employees, all public financing, and now we have fallen into this swamp of neoliberalism. And of course, the neoliberals tell the same story, they just think it's great as opposed to bad, but both neoliberals and the left share this, um, I once was lost, I'm now found kind of <laughs> biblical narrative, um, which one is paradise depends on your politics, but the narrative is pretty much the same. And that narrative is not only something that can easily be theoretically deconstructed in like two seconds by anybody who can, who's used to deconstructing binaries, it's also completely wrong, like historically wrong. It is particularly wrong in the case of North America. It might apply to some extent in China where the state really did used to do everything, and now there's sort of rampant privatization of urban planning. But in North America, it, is, it was never the case that the state planned much of anything beyond particular projects. There was never an overall plan. Public funding was often not actually present. It looked as if there was public funding, but that was not the case. There might have been federal incentives, like tax exemptions but not actual funding. Anyway, so um, you'll see some examples as I go through. I'm only able here to give a few examples, but the more I read, the more I see that it is just wrong. There was private design, building, and financing of infrastructure, not only before we had the welfare state, like in the early railways and so on, but even at the height of the welfare state, even when Ontario Hydro was at its peak, um, which you could say is the height of the public works era, even then, it is not, the NDP narrative is incorrect. It's just factually incorrect. Um, and more, I guess, conceptually, what I'm proposing is that instead of going on about the public and the private and lumping all sorts of things under those two binary adjectives, we realize that they are adjectives, not nouns. And so what we should figure out is what is it exactly that is going into, what are the component parts of the networks that actually produce urban infrastructure, urban development, whether it's housing or utilities or anything else. So I'm proposing, um, and this is quite sort of tentative, it's not even in my slides, um, that we divide what we usually sweep under, the public or the private, into four categories. There's four categories of things that can be either public or private, and what you often get is a combination. 
like public decision making or a public, the use of public law to expropriate, but then you get private financing or something, right? So you have hybrid networks. That's what produces urban development. I know it sounds like a trendy Bruno Latour term, but it is actually based in evidence. So the first one is jurisdiction and powers. So oftentimes what government does is simply pass a law that incentivizes something. So that's the use of legal powers. Fine. So the, there's public powers being used. So, and I would say there's jurisdiction, but there's also kind of informal power, sort of backroom or under the table power. So the first category would be power and jurisdiction. The second one is resources. So let's say the government can put in a chunk of land. That would be resource. But that land could also be you know, privately owned. In that case, we'd have a mix. The third one is personnel. It has become really fashionable in the public sector to hire people from the private sector. And I think you don't need to be Pierre Bourdieu to think that your career and your educational capital matters and you do things differently. So personnel would be a sort of separate category of analysis, which I'm not really doing here, um, but could be done, should be done. And the fourth one is governing practices. And governing practices, techniques of governance, whatever you want to call them, are sort of taken for granted ways of doing things that seem right and that are sort of habitual, like doing an audit. Suddenly, you know, some of you have read Mike Powers' wonderful book, The Audit Society. Suddenly, audits were just done for, to make sure corporations are not you know, corrupt. They started to be done for everything. So we had safety audits, and we had quality audits, and blah, blah. So an audit is an example of a practice of governance that has a particular political weight. It makes you focus on things that are quantifiable, which is why when we do a, a review of a department, they want to produce all these tables. And so the only thing that's measured is the stuff that you can measure. <laughs> and so the quality of education, which they purportedly measure, is reduced to what is quantifiable. So power jurisdiction, one category, resources, personnel, governing practices. Anyway, that's my theorization, so it's up front. And now, enough of that. Um, okay, so what I've been thinking about for a while now is what is the origin, what is the genealogy, and what is the significance of the term infrastructure as is being currently used? It's being used everywhere, and it's expanding. We used to only mean physical bridges and highways and maybe power transmission lines when we said infrastructure. Now people talk about data infrastructure and social infrastructure, whatever that is, right? So infrastructure, I'm arguing, and I think this is you know, well-based in evidence, is both a keyword of our time in the sort of Raymond Williams uh, Probably not a lot of cultural studies. Maybe Grace has read Raymond Williams. Anyway, Raymond Williams in the 1980s did this brilliant book called Keywords. And it had an entry for culture, society, democracy, showing you when that word was first used and what work it did and what it replaced, why civilization was not the same as culture and so on. So there are certain keywords that appear in Raymond Williams' book that are the keywords of that time. And everybody would recognize them as, yeah, that's 
what people have to put in uh, now. So it's a keyword of our time, and as I said, the fact that people who do social services are talking about social infrastructure, which is a bit like going from financial audit to safety audit. It's a bit like, you know, that's a keyword that's sort of traveling everywhere. But it's also a myth. And here in terms of myth, the reference here, if I was doing footnotes, would be, of course, Roland Barthes' mythologies. And Barthes famously argued, very influentially, that a myth is not a lie because it doesn't claim to be true. So a myth is a powerful symbol that has a whole narrative that goes with it. And because the myths are culturally based, they're not one person, so if I write a novel, that's not a myth. A myth is something that would be circulating in the culture, you know, light versus darkness, you know, whatever. So there's a myth that acts as a narrative. Uh, and he has a bunch of examples ranging from the sublime to the mundane, like the myth that detergents, you know, are what you should have, like when detergents were invented, when washing machines were invented, they had to invent detergents, like as opposed to soap, which is what people used before. So they had to sell the detergent as somehow cleaner than clean, cleaner than soap. So he gives that example, but also political myths that, that he analyzes. Anyway, so a, my a myth is not a lie, because it doesn't claim to be true. It is a narrative. So the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is a myth. And it would be stupid to ask, is it true or false? It doesn't matter whether it happened or not. The point is, what work does it do? How does it organize people's thoughts, people's values? Because myths are always normative. And myths are also appeal to the affect, as we know both from detergent advertising uh, Canadian tire commercials during the Olympics, which I watched a lot since I was home with a broken arm, and talk about myth. There's a myth of Canada that is embodied in Tim Horton's commercials, and you wouldn't have to watch the whole commercial, you just watch the first 10 seconds and you know what the myth is, right? So that's exactly a perfect example of a myth. And you can't say, oh, it's not true. Because it's not a factual statement that can be either proved or disproved, it's a myth. <coughs> okay, so the left-hand side of this, which I hope you've had a chance to read by now, but if not, um, is official discourse that proves that infrastructure works as a keyword in a myth. And it was fairly randomly chosen. I could have given you 5,000 of these. And it's from the homepage of the Ontario Ministry of Infrastructure. So if you look at it, you will see infrastructure is not a thing. There's nothing about what is infrastructure? They don't say it's utilities and highways and public transit, no. Um, when, when, you, when something comes to the level of being a keyword in a myth, it becomes black boxed in the sense that people don't actually say what it is they're talking about, they just assume that everybody knows. So it's black boxed. So all you do is use it again and again and again as in going from physical infrastructure to data infrastructure to social infrastructure to emotional infrastructure, some people are even talking about. Um, um, and that is done not only by official neoliberal discourse of public-private partnerships, which is what we have here, it's also done by the left. So the most recent book in critical left-wing urban studies is co-authored by Ashamin and Nigel Thrift, who are I mean, I don't see any geographers in the room, at least that I know of, but uh, 
they are the two most trendy left-wing geographers in the world, bar none. And so they have this book, Seeing Like a City. They actually acknowledge. I wrote an article called Seeing Like a City a few years before, but they're more famous than I am. So um, uh, at least they cited it, which a lot of famous guys wouldn't do. And in that book, it's exactly the same kind of rhetoric as the left, but with a left-wing turn to it. So they too black box infrastructure. They never tell you what infrastructure is or what they mean by it. And then they start talking about democratizing infrastructure, which sounds really nice, but you don't even know what it is you're talking about because it's black box. Anyway, so that's where I want to get to, is how is it that infrastructure became the keyword in the myth of, ur of urban life or urban governance. So any Anybody who knows Foucault would know that the way you start doing a genealogy of something, I was saying, well, what came before? Well, what came before infrastructure was public works. So I'm just going to say a few words. I'm going to say a lot about public works. But public works is a term that occupies much of the same space, but has very different connotations. Uh, the slides here are from the famous project. Many of you, I'm sure, have heard of it, even if you're not an urban studies person, the Hausmanization of Paris, right? So Baron Hausmann was given um, sovereign powers by, um, uh, I, I guess, um, Napoleon III to redo Paris, get rid of all those tiny little crooked streets that now tourists love so much, but that were seen as both unhealthy and as impeding military control when there was an uprising like the Paris Commune. So they tore down all of these little romantic little streets. Well, they didn't tear them all down. If you go to Paris now, there's still a lot of those. But they tore down a considerable number of them and put in grand boulevards, ruler straight boulevards. Right? How many of you have been to Paris? OK, so you know what I'm talking about. I thought I'd pick an example that would be familiar. So the hospitalization of Paris is, you could say, the beginning of public works. Because I can't think of any earlier example of heavy-duty, state-led, state-planned makeover of the urban along this seeing like a state, straight lines kind of line. Now, fast forward, I also know a lot about what was going on in the 1880s and 90s, but I'm going to skip that. I'm going to fast forward to the 1940s and 50s, the mid-20th century. Anybody know who this guy is? Anybody here from New York? No. Robert Moses is his name. You might have heard about him. He's the bad guy in that uh, if you ever read, Jane Jacobs movie. If you, <laughs> yeah, and in fact, when I, I have this picture. I have a picture later of Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses. There's like a million pictures of Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses, and it's presented as a binary. You know. Anyway, the picture on the upper left is a large neighborhood in Manhattan called, that was called, I don't know if it's still called that, Manhattan Town. And it had become fairly integrated, racially integrated, as the 20th century wore on. There was immigration from Puerto Rico and the Black South and so on. And it was one of the many, many, many neighborhoods in the New York area that were subject to slum clearance, urban renewal, often called Negro removal, but in the case of Manhattan, Negro removal doesn't necessarily describe it because what was 
uh, bulldozed over, in many cases were integrated, more or less integrated neighborhoods, replaced by either all white or all black um, you know, neighborhoods. And this was a public-private partnership, which is not usually talked about in histories of urban development. People always talk about slum clearance like it's you know, Big Brother coming down and doing everything, but that wasn't the case. Because in order to do this, Robert Moses had to find a private buyer, which in this case was an insurance company. The insurance company, MetLife, decided to invest, and this was 1945-46, so they built this huge housing development for vets, like, you know, World War II vets. And because federal housing rules were such that you could not insure any even remotely or slightly racially mixed developments that had to be all white. Even though, of course, there were many vets who were not white. So MetLife was the private partner that built this huge housing development, all for white vets. And then some of the black vets tried to sue, and they made a big stink. So then Robert Moses decided to build a tiny middle-class black development, very small and also some public housing that became 95% black. Okay, the point here is not really about the racial things. That's just sort of something you might be interested in. A link to Aquasi's earlier presentation. The point is to say it was a public-private partnership, but it just wasn't called that then. So when, he, when Robert Moses, who was the great czar of urban development in New York City, who was personally the head of six different public authorities, as well as the uh, commissioner of Parks for the state of New York. Um, if he couldn't find a private partner, the thing wouldn't go. Which is why there were all these toll highways and toll bridges and toll tunnels, because you had to make them investable and profitable, otherwise they wouldn't go. So you couldn't have made the Lincoln Tunnel or the Holland Tunnel free, because then they wouldn't have happened. Okay, the, the thing on the right is Greenwich Village. Uh, Washington Square, I'm sure many of you have been there. And this here, you can't see it very well, but it's the proposed Lower Manhattan Expressway, uh, which was never built. Because this is the time, by this, by this time it's about 1960. By this time it's not only Jane Jacobs, who doesn't like the seeing like a state put highways through neighborhoods approach. So it was never built. And it's often seen as the beginning of the fall of the grand public works slum clearance era, rightly or wrongly. Okay, what about Canada? Well, I was hard pressed to find a good Canadian example because the Canadian federal government never funded urban clearance and um, uh, slum clearance and housing renewal, only to the tiniest bit, the old Regent Park that was then recently you know, demolished and rebuilt. In 1948, it's one of the few examples of slum clearance, but it was done by the city of Toronto to build public housing for respectable white people. And uh, spending for that was approved by a referendum. I don't think you'd have that now. Um, but anyway, so Regent Park was developed by the city. So the federal government, having had no involvement in urban redevelopment, we didn't have these grand projects. The biggest project I can think of, and if anybody here knows a, another one, that corresponds to the kind of scale of the Port Authority of New York or all of that, is the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, 
which was put together out of existing pieces of, you know, like the Welland Canal was part of it, and there was a canal near Montreal that also was sort of made part of it. Um, it uh, made the St. Lawrence much more navigable from Montreal south to Lake Erie, and then connected with the Welland Canal to go over Niagara Falls. Um, and it's, if you look at its own web page, you know, of course it has a web page, it makes it seem like it was Ottawa just decided something and it happened as if we were in China before Deng Xiaoping, you know, somebody in the capital says something, it happens. And it wasn't like that at all. First of all, there was a lot of resistance because what they won't tell you on the St. Lawrence Seaway website is that no less than nine villages were destroyed by flooding. Two whole towns were moved, including uh, the town of Morrisburg. Some of you might have been there on the way to Montreal. And there was a chunk of Mohawk territory at Kanawaga that was expropriated for the St. Lawrence Seaway. Not a well-known fact, even by in sort of uh, um, uh, knowledgeable Canadians. And interestingly, one article I read suggested that it wasn't at all Ottawa wanting to create grand transportation down towards New York. It was really the provincial utilities, because the main purpose of the St. Lawrence Seaway, this article argued, wasn't really for the ship traffic. I mean, ship traffic was important, and it raised some revenues. But the main purpose of the thing wasn't the ship traffic. The main purpose of it was the dams that exist near uh, the Cornwall area um, that produce a lot of electricity for both Hydro-Quebec and Ontario Hydro. So again, it's hybrid. It's not necessarily a public-private um, hybrid, but it's a hybrid of electricity companies and the state and transportation and so on. So it's a much more complex network. But it was purely <coughs> publicly funded. And in that, it remains highly unusual. The US funded a few locks, but Canada funded most of it, because it was seen as mainly beneficial for Canada. OK, so. Um, so much for public works. I've given you a few examples. I hope some of you can think of others. I'm sure in every province, and every area, you can think of examples of public works. And what I want you to then think about is, OK, who actually was involved? Because it was always more than just one entity or one master builder. So after the decline of public works as a term and as a thing, what we've had is the rise of infrastructure. Now infrastructure too is not an invented word that was invented in 2005 when the Ontario Ministry of Infrastructure was created to replace the Ministry of Public Works. It has a longer history which eluded me for the longest time because no one has written about this that I could find. Uh, finally, a friend gave me a nice piece that showed that the word infrastructure was first used by engineers in the late 19th century to mean literally what is under the structures. So what they meant was the infrastructure was the work of, the infrastructure work was clearing the path, the land, acquiring the land, clearing it, leveling it so that private railways could then go. Um, it's a bit like what we have now with the waterfront. This is digression, but I'm happy to talk in the Q&A about Google City, for those of you who missed that talk. Uh, what's going on in the waterfront is that 
many hundreds of millions, and now it's going to go into the billions of public dollars, are being spent replacing the soil, the toxic soil in the waterfront, in order to then sell it to private developers at a fire sale price, like Robert Moses was selling the land to MetLife, um, because the private developers would never agree to buy land if they had to pay the cost of remediation. Okay, so that's an example of a hybrid network. Who benefits, who pays? It's not obvious, just by looking at it, you're not gonna know. <laughs> um, anyway, so the original meaning of the term, as I said, was this thing about laying ground for railways. And what I found fascinating is that the engineers and the railway companies and the municipal officials all assumed that preparing the land was inherently public work. That was something for the government to do. It didn't sound like there was any discussion about who should do it, no. It was just like, well, that's what government does. Maybe because of the settler colonial idea that the government clears the West, you know, and then private enterprise settles it and makes money off it, I don't know. So there was a kind of public-private partnership implicit in the very idea of infrastructure right at the beginning. And then I sort of have somewhat of a non sequitur. I'm asking myself whether cities, rather than provinces, retain both public works departments, as many do, but also the logic of public works, and they haven't been as contaminated by infrastructure. Um, I think that's true because cities in Canada are much less likely to do public-private partnerships. They're much more likely to do pure public finance issuing municipal bonds, anyway. So what could be happening at one scale doesn't always happen everywhere. Um, now, an important point, and after this I won't bore you with sort of technical details because uh, I think for most people it's boring. A lot of people, a lot of the accounts I read and indeed some of the stuff I cited in publications that are forthcoming now, I can't change, suggest that private financing was invented in the Thatcher era and developed in the 1980s. Private financing of public works. Uh, but that's not actually true. As I said, if you look back to much earlier projects of downtown redevelopment in American cities in the 1930s, you'll see private financing. It just wasn't called that. It came to be called private financing in 1980 with the Thatcher era. What did happen in the 80s was very significant. I had originally planned to not ever do any research on finance as part of my research on the governance of infrastructure, but um, my co-author and collaborator, Fleur Johns, who's a corporate law professor at the University of New South Wales, even though she's a postmodern feminist, um, she persuaded me, she has this article called Financing as Governance, that is absolutely persuasive, that if you want to understand how any organization is organized, where the power is, you know, it's the old thing about follow the money, but follow the money isn't just following the path of the money, it's looking to see what financing mechanisms are used. So it's a lot harder than just following the money. So what happened uh, in Canada and other places is that major specialized infrastructure funds were created to only invest in infrastructure. And in Canada, all those specialized funds are public sector pension funds. I think you can appreciate that if private financing, 
you know, when the government says, oh, we don't want to go into debt by another $2 billion, what are we going to do? Oh, we'll just borrow the money and have the private sector put the money up front and then we'll pay them 40 years from now, um, which, which is what private financing is. It's basically burdening the next generation with the debt rather than uh, having the government of Ontario look even worse than it does by <laughs> adding to today's debt. I mean, that's what private financing is. So, I mean, that had been around for, you know, quite a long time. But you have these specialized infrastructure funds. So what they want and how they want to invest and what the... So you have all these project agreements for all of the Infrastructure Ontario, uh, you know, projects. And I thought, well, the length of the agreement surely is like the life of the asset. So, but then I realized, no, they're all the same. So whether it's a hospital or a bridge, it's 40 years. I thought, well, how can that be? Because a bridge is going to last a lot longer than 40 years, we hope. I don't know about the hospital. So I, my friend Fleur Jones was the one who said, that's because the pension funds want to improve their viability and their payout to current pensioners by having income absolutely assured bulletproof income 40 years from now. Because the rest of us may be dead, but the pension funds still have to be there to pay out uh, you know, pensions. Um, so I, I hope you can see the irony that it's public sector pension funds of public employees that are undermining, totally undermining public financing. So public sector pension funds need the 407 toll highway to be a toll highway. Because otherwise their pension fund isn't making any money which would defeat the purpose. <laughs> Do you see that? Anyway, that's sort of a bit of a footnote, but it's crucial. This is one example. Oxford Properties, even though it sounds like it some, has something to do with Oxford, it doesn't, total fake name. It's the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement Fund that is Oxford. And if you read even some of that, you can see what they own. And for years, they've been investing in privatized infrastructure in those countries in Europe that have privatized a lot more. So they have huge investments in the UK, where a lot of public stuff was privatized really early. And that's a picture of the Hudson Yards in New York City, which is owned by the pension fund of retired Ontario municipal employees, which they don't advertise. Of course, they say, oh, it's Oxford properties. Anyway, you don't have to read it all, but you know you can see uh, kind of the size of the thing, and that's just Omer's. Teachers is just as big, and the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board is even bigger. They have something like I'm going to make a mistake in magnitude. I'm going to say 750 billion dollars. It can't be true, but it it might be true because the other pension funds are all in the range of 50, 75 billion dollars. Like, you know, we're not talking small capital. Um, and the Canadian pension plan used to not be invested in anything. It just was sitting there like your savings bank account. But then an investment board was created that is arm's length to government and to the pension plan board, and they invest. Okay, so back to, I'm, I'm now coming to the conclusion. Back to infrastructure as a myth. I said infrastructure is a key word of our time, and I'd love it if 
any of you have other examples of peculiar uses of the term infrastructure to cover odd things. Um, infrastructure as a myth has two components, really, like two actual meanings. Um, one is efficiency and the other one is innovation, right? Part of what people call neoliberalism, I don't like to use the word, but if you want to use it, part of what is known as neoliberalism is the general assumption that by nature, private sector methods are more efficient and more innovative. And that if you want to do something innovative, you either go to the private sector or you borrow their methods of doing things, right? I mean, even in university governance, this is starting to pervade, not as much here as in the UK, fortunately, but um, efficiency and innovation. Now, I've spent a huge amount of time over the past four or five years poring over documents like project agreements, infrastructure on terror reports that claim to document the fact that there is efficiency and that public-private partnerships are more efficient than just old-fashioned uh, you know, public procurement. Mm -hmm. And uh, they usually don't define efficiency. It's just black boxed again, which is interesting. You think you have a measure of efficiency? Uh, I can tell you now how many people are served by the particular infrastructure is not a measure of efficiency. How many people are served, how quickly is not a measure. There's only one measure, which is on time and on budget, which is all one word in infrastructure <laughs> discourse. On time and under, on budget or under budget. I could give you a whole spiel about how budgets for infrastructure projects are calculated, especially when they reach into the hundreds of millions no ordinary person would know if um, the athletic center with the fancy swimming pools at Scarborough should have been 200 million or 300 million because none of us have ever bought anything in that range. Um, anyway, so on time and under budget is sort of a virtue, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, a lot of publicly procured projects are too slow and so on. But the point is that it's the only virtue. And it's, of course, a quantitative thing. You can measure whether it's on time or under budget. Nobody ever asks, who set the budget? And budgets by infra in infrastructure interior projects are always set way too high. So they always come in under budget. I mean, it's, I, again, I spent like a whole year trying to figure this out. And finally, I realized, well, if I gave my daughter $500 to buy a pair of pants. No wonder she would come in under budget. <laughs> so that's the infrastructure Ontario trick. And never is the budget justified. They claim they're justifying, but no, they're just breaking it down. 200 million for construction, 100 for consultants, this for that, for that. It's broken down, but breaking it down is not a justification. And on time, well, of course they're on time because they're contracts. And so, if you are the city of Toronto and you want to pave a bunch of roads, you could say, well, I'll, my plan is to pave five this year, but if I run out of money, I'm going to put off the fifth road till next year. And that's perfectly logical if you're the city. You can spread, just like in an ordinary household, you might say, okay, my plan is to finish all the house renovations before the end of the month, but I can't afford it, so I'm going to put it off. But here, being on time is, uh, is both a virtue and a necessity. It's a necessity because it's in the contract. And, you know, 
municipal bylaws can be changed to feel whatever, but contracts are set in stone. Now, one really interesting thing is that in all of the infrastructure, I've gone to many, as sort of the fly on the wall, I've gone to many infrastructure insider workshops. They don't seem to mind. In fact, many of them like to talk to me, which is interesting. Even though I've given them some of drafts of my articles, and they say, oh yeah, you're right, that's interesting, you know. They really are over budget, you know, like they'll admit to all kinds of things, but they, of course they still do what they do. Uh, it's a bit like when people in criminology interview prison guards and they realize the prison guards already know everything that the criminologists know. And they might even admit it, they're just not going to put it in writing or tell their boss. Anyway, so what you always hear at these infrastructure insiders meetings is that they always want to have the model, you know, best practices. Model urban planning is always drawn from Singapore or Shanghai. And I want to point out that maybe I should raise my hand and say, do you know how those cities are governed? Is there any democracy? <laughs> but I thought, no, I'm the fly on the wall. So Singapore and Shanghai are always the model. And now there's all these African cities that are trying to be like Shanghai. Um, having no elections really helps if you want to be on time and under budget. Um, <laughs> And they do occasionally mention what they call the political, by which they mean elections, as, and always as a risk. And they sit around lamenting the fact that you can't quantify political risks. So they say, well, I can quantify the risk of you know, running into toxic material and having to do soil remediation. They can quantify that, because this happened before. But they cannot quantify political risks. And this brings into distraction, because if you can't quantify it, you can't price it. And all of the project agreements are about pricing risks. So they can't quantify it. So all they do is lament the fact that, oh my god, we have elections in this country. And so the next government might do something different. And you know, of course, I'm not saying that politicians do the right thing. God knows we have Rob Ford and the Scarborough subway to make you think private enterprise would have been better. But all I'm saying is that the way in which democracy appears only as a risk is telling. Because that is the world of infrastructure. The people who ran public works, who were directly appointed by politicians and who were accountable to politicians, did not treat local politics as a risk. They, in fact, tried to play the game themselves. Um, anyway. And innovation, well, I don't have time to go into it now, but I have an article with Fleur Jones and Jen Russell that's accepted, it's ready, I can share it with anybody, it's not yet published, that shows that contrary to the myth of innovation, when public-private partnerships began, there would be sort of one-off innovative examples. And possibly the Regent Park redevelopment might be in some people's views, an example of innovation, things were done differently. There was no boilerplate, there was no cookie cutter, there was no prior history of public-private housing in Toronto. So they had to invent everything from scratch, and of course it took a long time, and it took years, and lots of community consultations and all of this. It's definitely um, a protracted thing. And it had probably some innovation, it's that I'm not an ex, I haven't studied it, probably had some innovation in governance and in maybe architectural design, but, when we interviewed, we interviewed 30 people, 10 of whom were private sector lawyers who do infrastructure contracts, who are much 
more readily available than uh, lawyers in the public sector, <laughs> those of you who are dealing with uh, uh, you know, criminological topics. And the story we got from everybody, I mean, this is unanimous, was that, well, when public-private partnerships were a new thing, private financing was a new thing, sometimes, you know, you'd get something that would be unusual, it would be suited to the community, it would be bottom-up, somebody asked for a public-private development. But once you started doing these slowly as the Regent Park thing was done, you have a problem. And the problem, this very senior corporate lawyer on Bay Street said, is the too few deals problem. You have one deal and you have another deal, and if you're a city, that's okay, but if you're a province, that doesn't work. You want a whole array of projects. The phrase that is now used all the time is a pipeline of projects. Of course, the fact that that is a particular politics in Canada doesn't seem to bother them. The, Canadian, the new federal infrastructure bank talks about how what they want to do is not one project or two projects. They want to do a pipeline of projects. As if projects, you know, a hospital and a bridge were like fungible, like petroleum, and you could, you could sort of homogenize them and make them flow. Well, they are, of course, fungible from the financing point of view, because the TD Bank and OMERS do not care if it's a hospital or a bridge or a swimming pool as long as they're making money out of it. So, again, financing as governance. The lenders need a pipeline of projects. They don't just want one project where we're going to get, you know, $100 million in 40 years. They want a pipeline of projects to stabilize their pension fund and give them a fantastic credit rating and so on. So, the too few deals problem gave rise to standardization, like extreme standardization that you could call boilerplate. Um, so if you, I wouldn't recommend this, but if you read any random six projects in the Infrastructure Ontario website, and they range between five and six hundred pages, so that's why I don't recommend you do it. Um, <laughs> but actually the main reason I recommend not doing it is you don't learn anything. It's like a lot of information, but nothing of any value. But the thing I discovered after going through these quite, um, painfully with a young economist who was my RA, is that they're 95% exactly the same, regardless of what the project is. And 95% probably underestimates, we just had to guess. Um, so the project is standardized. And in fact, in the UK, the Blair government issued what they call the Bible of private financing. And it was called Standardization of Privately Financed Projects. Now, anybody who comes from private law knows what a contract is supposed to do, which is to facilitate unique meetings of the will between two free individuals. You'll see the standardizing private financing contract is a bit ironic. Uh, when the David Cameron government reissued that guide, so it's not as though it was just a flash in the pan blare or anything. Okay, so to conclude, I have two more slides. Okay, would it be correct to say we once had a glorious era of great public works like the St. Lawrence Seaway, although we'd be hard-pressed to name very many more. Um, and now we've fallen into, you know, privatization and um, neoliberalism. Another way of posing the binary is the famous James Jacobs versus Robert Moses standoff, um, which turns out is somewhat mythical because it wasn't Jane Jacobs who led the mothers of Greenwich Park. It was another woman whose name nobody remembers, <laughs> but Jane Jacobs wrote the book. So, um, 
goes to show, you don't have to do it, you just have to write the books, it's good for a PhD student. So, uh, so there's been this idea, promoted especially by Jane Jacobs, also by James Scott in his very influential book, Seeing Like a State, um, this idea that there was this bad era of expert-led, centralized, top-down planning, exemplified by Robert Moses and the Lower Manhattan Expressway. But then we saw the light in the 1960s, and we started to see like a neighbor instead of seeing like a state. And we do small projects with community consultations and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I would argue that is a false binary. I don't have time to even say more, but I hope you've seen some of the evidence along the way. But I think what really predominates in all urban development in North America, as I said, it wouldn't be the case in China, in North America is what I have to call the art of the deal. So that if the TD Bank or Omers is interested in something, they'll go talk to Infrastructure Ontario, say, oh, do you have any bridges you know, in the plan or hospitals or something? Because we've decided that's what we want to invest in. And it's the art of the deal. Just like Robert Moses, when he had to find a private owner for the slum that he was going to bulldoze and expropriate, he had to find a private partner first. He couldn't just do it, because then the city would be stuck with the land and wouldn't have any money to do anything with it. So it's the art of the deal. And when we have the art of the deal as the mode of doing infrastructure, we get one project at a time. <coughs> and in fact, if you want to check out the website of Infrastructure Ontario, which I highly recommend just so that you can tell I'm using evidence, I'm not making this up, Infrastructure Ontario has no plan for the province. Nothing. It's a series of isolated projects. And so if you go to that website, they give you a list of projects. And they expect you live in Huntsville, like, you know, Tony or something. And you want to look at the gazebo that was built in the park when Tony Clement was MP or something. So they want you to look at a project. And then you see the budget, very transparent. You see the budget, you see the timeline, and you get a picture of what it looked like when it was built. What you do not see is a justification. Because projects and pictures of projects and descriptions of projects cannot justify themselves. You have to have a justification at another scale. Now, I once asked an infrastructure expert, why isn't there a needs assessment done for infrastructure? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we did a needs assessment and thought, oh, what we really need is X. And they said, oh, that might be fine, but that's not how the P3 world works. You just have to work one deal at a time. Of course, if you did an infrastructure needs assessment, you'd say, oh, water in indigenous communities, drinking water in indigenous communities, that's priority number one. It does not appear in infrastructure Ontario. They hope the feds will look after it, but it's not investable. No one's gonna make money providing drinking water in indigenous communities because you wouldn't be allowed to charge for it. So, um, or not very much anyway. So there is no needs assessment. There is no evidence-based planning. Why? Because of the scale, because each project is planned by mysterious processes that are often political, and then they're given over the politicians decide which one's gonna go. The financiers 
also have a lot to say. Then it goes to the experts, and the experts put their boilerplate cookie cutter model in place, and then it goes. And then you have a bridge, and then you have an opening, and then you have a photo op. And the photo op has this really interesting maneuver, um, which, you know, from a legal point of view is highly questionable, which is presenting the thing as self-justifying. Because it exists, it was worth having. Well, I could name a few projects on this campus that uh, actually, when you look into it, weren't necessarily justified, but the, the scale of reporting of infrastructure is crucial here. The information scale, as our late colleague Richard Erickson would put it, the information, the way the information is conveyed to the public is crucial because you only get information one project at a time. And then, of course, this is amplified by the practices of journalism because journalists aren't writing about, oh, the province of Ontario has no infrastructure plan. That's not going to be page one in the globe. The page one in the globe is going to be gas plant scandals. It's going to be the single project, right? So a reporter can write about one project, usually if there's something wrong with it, or even to praise it. You know, like these days we have Christopher Hume singing the praises of Google City. Um, you know, you can have, but, but as long as infrastructure is seen and governed and reported on only one project at a time, all we're going to have is the art of the deal. And we're not going to have a clue whether the bridges and highways and hospitals and university buildings that we're getting are what we really need, or if something else would have been much more useful from the point of view of the public and also the users of that particular service or entity. Thank you. I, I had more slides, but I'm going to forget about them. Because, uh, <laughs> Thank you.